Good morning again. My name is Joe, and my pronouns are he and him. And I think the clicker is going to work this week. Maybe. There we go. The universe is expanding. The rate at which the universe is expanding is getting faster. Really, it is. The edge of the universe is moving away from us at a speed of roughly 73 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Kind of. Even the people who understand what that means actually can't see the edge of the universe getting farther away. Their measurements are rather imprecise. But we can tell that the incredibly distant galaxies that we can observe are moving away from us at different rates. The farther they are from us, the faster they're moving away. The conclusion is that space itself is expanding. The distance between galaxies is getting bigger. The universe is spreading out, something like 7% expansion every billion years. The numbers are huge, the physics is complicated, but if you go to YouTube, you'll find a bunch of most excellent nerds playing with balloons. So imagine a balloon with a bunch of dots drawn on it in marker. As you blow up the balloon, the dots get farther away from each other. The dots themselves aren't actually moving relative to the surface of the balloon, but as the balloon gets bigger, the dots get farther away from each other. Apparently something like that is happening in the universe. And in this case, the galaxies are actually moving themselves as well in various directions, in addition to this expanding universe. To add even more complexity, the rate of expansion is accelerating. The balloon of the universe is getting blown up faster than it used to be, we think. So many questions, and a whole lot that we may simply never know. But the implication is profound. This solid, physical, earthy planet is in motion in multiple dimensions within a solar system that is itself in motion, whirling through a galaxy that is also soaring through the universe. And that universe that we're moving through is expanding faster than ever. The cosmos is in motion. Whatever it is, it's not finished yet. Movement defines our existence. The only constant is change. On the one hand, none of that really seems to matter to us. The Earth beneath our feet might be spinning at 460 meters per second, but really we're not going anywhere. No need to buckle your seatbelts. But on the other hand, all that motion brings days and nights, seasons and weather patterns, the swirling nebular dust cloud from which emerged our solar system itself, the astrological signs that determine our fate. Just kidding about that part. But you get my point. The universe feels motionless, stationary, and fixed, but it's actually filled with the motion that gives birth to animation, to vitality, to life. What appears to be static and set is actually flowing and moving. All that we know, the cosmos, is still unfolding. In theological terms, that is the mystery of the Trinity. Most of the time I think about God in metaphors that are static. God is my rock. God is the source of life. 
God is like the force, the united field. God is the Jesus of history, the cosmic Christ, the good creator. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is truth to that. We need God to be solid, reliable, knowable, and trustworthy. But the primary description of God in Christianity, the one teaching that has defined and distinguished the followers of Jesus for 2,000 years, is Trinity. God is creator, Jesus, and spirit, three in one. The foundational Christian doctrine about the nature and shape of God, and we just made it into a mathematical conundrum which we couldn't resolve, so we shelved the whole thing. And I remember the Irish nuns who taught me and she held up the shamrock in the third grade and says, God is like this. And then she said, don't think about it, all right? <laughs> now, actually, this Irish nun was rather correct, really, because it, it is unthinkable, just like we learn about consciousness and the nature of the universe. But um, it took the, the early, that early Christian period three centuries to unpackage this gobbledygook language of Jesus where he's talking about being one with the Father, but talking to the Father as if the Father's over there, giving you the Spirit, but being one with the Spirit. The Spirit is in the Father. The Father gives you the Spirit. I, when, I, when I read, uh, you know, John's Gospel as a priest, I can just see all Catholics, their eyes just glaze over. I don't know what he is talking about. Well, the whole Christian world didn't know what he was talking about. But after three centuries in Cappadocia, Three brilliant theologians, two named Gregory, one named Basil, they finally said, well, here's the best we can do. God is like a circle dance. Peri means around. Choresis or choreography means dance. Huh? If I said that to you today without quoting the third century or fourth century, you'd think I was really flaky, wouldn't you? Huh? God is a circle dance. Well, the reason we can talk that way and receive at least a partial receptivity is because of quantum physics and everything you've been talking about here. Suddenly God as a flow, God as a communion, God as a intercommunion, God as an interdependence, not a particle, but the relationship between the particles. Uh, my God, Christians had this in code form all along and never recognized it. God is not a particle, but the relationship between the particles. The circle dance. God is movement. God is the flow. Like the universe appearing solid and constant, but on a deeper level, absolutely filled with motion. And inviting us to join in the dance. That's the second premise of the alternative orthodoxy that we are studying this fall. Foundation. If God is Trinity, and Jesus is the face of God, then it is a benevolent universe. God is not someone to be afraid of, but is the ground of being and on our side. This foundation tenet gives us four images of God. The first is Trinity, God in motion. That's fairly different from the way I usually think about God. So I really like the metaphor that God is like the expanding universe. It feels solid and yeah, it is solid, as far as I'm concerned. I don't need to memorize the Hubble constant or factor in the expanding universe to get through my day. 
But at the same time, it really is expanding and moving. And the way that it moves absolutely shapes everything around me and within me. God is like that too. Your Latin lesson for the day, deus ad intra is deus ad extra. Actually, I think it's pronounced deus. I don't speak Latin. The inside of God is the same as the outside of God. The inner workings of God are reflected in the outer shape of God. The pattern of God is the pattern of everything. The shape of the universe is the shape of God. Creation reveals the creator. So of course science has revealed that the universe is expanding, in motion, unfolding, because God is motion, expansion, and unfolding. As Father Richard said, this isn't new. This is what Jesus taught. This is what the architects of the church wrote down. This is Christianity from the very beginning. The second image is pretty familiar. Jesus is the face of God. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. God is mystery. I don't understand half of what I said this morning about God being flow and trinity. Don't let me fool you, I do not speak Latin. But I can follow Jesus. My internet friend, science Mike McCarg, likes to point out that young children can't understand concepts like justice and democracy. If we try to explain our system of government to a four-year-old, most of the time they're not going to get it. Some are more advanced than others. But if we show your average four-year-old a picture of a judge, or hey, this is what your prime minister looks like, if we introduce them to a police officer, they can understand the people, they understand the jobs that make the systems function. They'd need faces to understand. It's like that with God. Most of the time, we start with the personal and we move towards the abstract. Sometimes we start with the abstract and move towards the personal. But for balance and maturity, we need both. Love and understanding. Wisdom and devotion. With our kids and our grandkids, we start with Jesus. They're going to struggle with the idea of the divine dance most of the time. Many of us struggle with the idea of something like the divine dance. But a man who walked around treating people with kindness, speaking the truth, and teaching his friends to be the best version of their, themselves, kids get that. That is the face of God. And that's not just for kids. We all need to put faces to our ideas. We need a God with a personality, a face we can pray to, a body we can see at work. And if that's as far as we ever get, if all we manage is doing our best to follow Jesus, that's a pretty good way to live. The third image in this tenet about, is of God as the ground of being. I should probably confess at this point that I don't know exactly what is meant by this as a theological term. When I arrived at seminary as a 24-year-old, it was one of the phrases being thrown around casually by my professors and peers at the time. Well, if we are to accept Tillich's characterization of God as the ground of being, particularly as expressed in his native German, the ontological implications for faith are overwhelming. And I'd be like, oh yes, I concur, quite compelling indeed. But on the inside, I'm thinking, I'm a Mennonite, we like Jesus. I never have gone to the trouble of reading Paul Tillich in German or studying the ontological underpinnings of the ground of being terminology. So if you have, feel free to correct me if I get it wrong. Anyway, this ground of being is a loaded term. 
But I think the basic image here is that God is that which is beyond us. Albert Einstein reportedly said that despite his scientific achievements, he continued to bump up against the limits of knowledge. Try and penetrate with our limited means the secrets of nature, and you will find that behind all the discernible patterns, there remains something subtle, intangible, and inexplicable. Veneration for this force beyond anything that we can comprehend is my religion. For much of human history, we have imagined God as a being, having a mind, a will, a face, a heart, being a person like us. Like I said, we need faces. God was described as the highest being, the best being, still a being. And for Tillich and Einstein and many other modern Western thinkers, that concept of God was too limited. It felt like humanity making God in our image. Anything that can be understood and, and explained by humans is by definition too small to be God. So God is not a being, but God is whatever is beyond being. God is the source that gives being, that which brings being into being and sustains the existence of being. Perhaps you can see why I never got around to studying Tillich's ontological philosophy. There must be something beyond existence, and that something beyond, that is God. The finite cannot contain the infinite, so God is the infinite that gives birth to the finite, the source of life and love and all that is, the ground of being. That's all I got. So we have the flow of the Trinity, the face of God in Jesus, and the ground of being beyond, within, and among. My favorite word in this premise, though, is the first one, if. There's a whole lot of uncertainty baked into everything that I've said today. The science of the expansion of the universe is pretty solid, but there are more unknowns than knowns. Our best models depend on things that we are mostly ignorant about, and we give them impressive sci-fi names like dark energy and quantum fluctuations. The concept of trinity is an intentional paradox. It's a collection of imperfect metaphors and abstract ideals. Jesus may be the face of God, but what we know about Jesus the man is a collection of artistic renderings at best. It's disembodied quotes and creatively crafted biographies filtered through the agendas of multiple communities of his followers. The Gospels are faithful, they're trustworthy, they're frankly amazing, but they're not unbiased journalism. And the ground of being, how many more times do I have to say ontological philosophy? If seems pretty appropriate. Uncertainty is an understandable and reasonable place to begin. There's room for error in all of these convictions. As I said last week, our faith is not based on nothing. We find wisdom in our scriptures, in our personal experiences, and in the shared voices of our tradition and community. When we hold these things together, we do find wisdom and truth. We are on solid ground. And yet, the cosmos is in motion. The tradition is change. Richard Rohr is nearly 80 years old, and he says that he says straight out that he fully expects these tenets that he's written, he expects his faith to be deconstructed and rewritten by the next generation. I'm trying to be like that, to begin with humility, to hold on with open hands, even to these ideas that are at the center of my faith. The universe is expanding. 
Change and growth are to be expected, including my own. The other if, the other gift that 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 if offers is space for faith. There's a pretty big promise at the heart of this alternative orthodoxy. If God is who we think God is, then it is a benevolent universe. God is not someone to be afraid of, but is the source of blessing. God is on our side. The unwritten subtext here is that some streams of Christian theology perhaps unintentionally place God in opposition to humanity. We know ideas like the fall of creation, original sin, the wrath of God, atonement theology, and redemptive suffering. Sorry, more big words in ontological philosophy. These things place a gap between creator and creation. There is darkness in our world, in our humanity, and that separates us from the God who is light. That's pretty basic for some Christian theologies. The alternative orthodoxy has plenty to say about darkness. We'll get there soon enough. But the story begins and ends with kindness over holiness, love over fear, and wholeness over separation. The reality of darkness does not change that, not ever. We don't need to cower or beg, for God is good. We don't need to fear the end of the story, for the end of the story is kindness and benevolence. Again, if. You may have heard, I had a heart attack this summer. I know, drama queen, I don't talk about much else these days. But it's kind of funny how the story changes from one telling to the next. Especially at first, people expected it to be a tragedy, so that's how I told it. Well, I'm okay now, but you know, there is no such thing as a minor heart attack. And that is the truth. It was a scary event, even though I'm pretty good at denial. I don't think my life was ever in real danger, but still, I was worried about my family, my work, what would happen when I was gone, what comes next. It's a sobering reality. I'm grateful to be alive and recovering well. So I can tell the story as tragedy, this thing happened to me, but I can also tell quite a hopeful story. This is the one I tell most of you. You know, it was just the one blockage and that was taken care of. I had a stent put in, all good now. The scans show no permanent damage of my heart. The rest of my arteries are good. I'm actually better off now that I've had this heart attack because I know what's going on inside my heart. With medication and a healthy lifestyle, things are really looking up. Also a true story. But then again, I can tell this as a story of loss. You know, I'm on five different prescriptions. I'll be on some of them for life. Who knows what the side effects are gonna be over time. And I really have to watch my diet. No more burgers and fries, no alcohol, just salads and kale smoothies for this guy. (laughs) Gotta be really careful moving forward. I have to limit my stress, take it easy, breathe, avoid anything too strenuous physically. You know, this really could affect my work, my family life. I'm more fragile than I thought I was, you know? What if that makes me a shell of who I used to be moving forward? One of the paramedics who helped to transport me between hospitals heard my story and actually said, well, at least you had a good 40 years, I guess. (laughs) Not what you say to somebody who's in the middle of a heart procedure. But that is one way to look at it. Life before is not going to be the same as life after. There is a whole lot of loss in this story. Or maybe it's a story about hope. Some of you have noticed I've already lost a few pounds since the heart attack. 
I'm eating better, I'm exercising regularly, paying attention to my body, resting well, working on healthier ways to deal with stress. This is a real turning point for my life. It's a wake-up call. Maybe a heart attack is in some way the best thing that could have happened to me. It certainly makes for an engaging sermon illustration. Harv even woke up. <laughs> Perhaps, sorry Harv, that wasn't fair. <laughs> Perhaps my story will inspire somebody else to do something about their health, to take them, their own health more seriously and whatever, something like that. So this is a story of hope. Or maybe, maybe I'll wake up tomorrow to find out, well, you know, the doctors missed something. And it's back to the tragedy narrative. Or maybe after that, the doctors will learn something amazing from their mistake and they'll develop a new life-saving procedure and name it after me. He's coding. Get this guy a Heichman remedy stat. We've been watching a lot of ER in our house lately. Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe you get the point. Things get worse, then they get better, then they get worse, and then they get better, they get worse, and so on. My story is still unwritten. It might be a tragedy, or an inspiration, or a farce. It all depends on how I tell it, where I pause the story, where I choose to put my judgments, what meaning I give to it. When we decide, well, that's a wrap, that's the story, and scene. Though all of that is contained in that if. We will always be in the middle of the story, living in a universe that is still expanding at an increasing rate. And so we get to choose. Is this a benevolent universe? Will we fill our stories with forgiveness, with benevolence, with redemption, with hope, and with trust? That is the flow of the Trinity. That is the resurrection of Christ. That is the ground of being that sustains life through heart attacks and worse. Richard Rohr again. What Trinitarian flow allows and makes happen is that there's no dead ends. Although it might look like it in the short order, you step back from it and wait till April. Step back from it, uh, the tragic situation, and realize it raised two people to immense maturity. Nothing seems to completely die. There's some kind of persistent flow that will not be stopped. It will not be stopped. A persistent flow that will not be stopped. That's the story that we find ourselves in. That's the God that I see when I look at creation, the Christ, the Spirit, within my own story. And always, the invitation is not just to think about this, but to join in the dance. One more image to offer. The title given to this tenet is Foundation. And again, that's a static metaphor. Foundations are solid, they're literal concrete block walls that hold everything together. And we need that. But the whole point of this foundation is motion, the persistent flow, the life that is constantly giving birth to new life. With a hat tip to Rob Bell, I'll suggest that a different metaphor for this foundation is a trampoline. It's also solid, but it's stretchy. It will catch us if we fall. It offers comfort and consistency, but the point of the trampoline is the bouncing. 
It's the, in the movement where the energy is found. It's the joy, the freedom, the fullness. So it's good to think about all this stuff to try to understand God, but God isn't a puzzle to solve with our minds. The flow is calling us. The universe is expanding. Let's get on the trampoline and let's join the dance.